Hello there, welcome to this pop-up seminar where I'm going to look at uh, the idea of social antagonism. Uh, if you're watching this live, please feel free to comment and put your thoughts down and ask questions in the chat box. And then at the end, um, I'll go there, have a little look and maybe kind of address some of the, the questions that are coming up. Um, so first of all, why am I doing this talk? Um, every other video, almost it seems, on YouTube is giving hot takes on what's going on in America, um, currently with what happened in DC, but also before that with what's been going on with social unrest with Antifa and BLM. And so there's been a lot of social antagonisms over the last year that we know of across the world uh, and also but in the US where I currently live. And a lot of the hot takes um, I don't think are that good. There are some people I do like, and maybe I'll talk about them at the end. Um, but also one of the things that people don't talk very much about is not so much what they think, but how to think. How do we begin to approach questions of political theory? How do we begin to understand what's going on within society? Um, as the first step, to uh, understanding how social change, transformation, emancipation can occur. Uh, and I do think that we're kind of living in a moment where people are experiencing something similar to a religious awakening, the old revivals that happened occasionally in the past where literally thousands of people would um, get have this kind of like experience of profound guilt and profound forgiveness and entering into a movement and all of the stuff that comes with that. But there's a lot of people who uh, you could say almost are being politically awakened in some way, but don't have the framework or the background to be able to begin to work out how do we think about um, politics and how do we look at society um, and kind of work out what's going on. So that's why I'm doing this. So it's going to be a theoretical talk. I'm going to use some examples and there will be some practical takeaways at the end. But my main point in the main seminar is uh, not to tell you what I think so much as to talk about a way of thinking, a way of approaching the news, a way of, a way of reading um, uh, texts and reading social antagonisms. To do that, I'm going to talk about three different things. And by the way, this is a very informal seminar, so I'm not reading a paper or anything like that. This is not a university. I never went into university, no interest in that. So this is kind of informal. But I, I want to talk about three things. Uh, the first, I want to define the real. Now, if you've been following my work or you're interested in philosophy, you'll know that term. And uh, it's used by different philosophers. Um, the, it's most often referred to at the moment to the, philo to the philosopher and psychoanalyst primarily, uh, Lacan. So I'm going to try to define what this concept, the real, is as a political category. Right? So we're going to look at what the real is as a political category. And if I can then define that, the second thing I want to do is I want to use that in order to describe what ideology is. And when I'm talking about ideology, I'm talking also about propaganda. So what is ideology? We use this term um, a lot, uh, but it's sometimes hard to actually define exactly what it is. So I'm going to try and really pinpoint what ideology is, not in its content, 
because I can have different content at different times, but the form of ideology itself. And then thirdly, I'm going to talk about how do we hit the real? How do we, um, I don't want to say allow the real to speak, that's a way of saying it, but hit on the real as a way of creating positive change within society. So the real is something that we need to understand because potentially it is where all change can occur. So I want to kind of circle back to the real in the third part. After that, some practical takeaways and conclusions. Okay, so hope you're sitting down, pour yourself a drink and let's get started. Um, okay, first of all, the real. Um, in order to understand what this is, I want to begin with an essay that the anthropologist uh, Claude Levi-Strauss wrote. Um, I don't know when it was, maybe in the 60s, it might even be earlier than that. And it's in volume one of his two-volume work, Structural Anthropology. And the essay is called, Do Dual Organisations Exist? Now, I'm going to define what a dual organisation is in a second. But the essay starts, oh, and by the way, this essay was important for Lacan. Lacan and Levi-Strauss were friends. And more recently, uh, Shizek has written brilliantly on it in a book called The Parallax View, uh, which is actually a few years old now, maybe 10 years old now. Um, okay, so at the beginning of this essay, uh, uh, Levi-Strauss uh, refers to this other anthropologist called, I think, Radon, who had done work with the Winnebago, a tribe called, uh, one of the Great Lake tribes in the Winnebago, um, or I think they're called the Winnebago tribe. And he noticed that when Radon asked different people in the village to draw a map of the village, they would draw it in two different ways, depending on whether they were part of one group or the other, the upper frailty or the lower frailty. So basically the, the village was split broadly into two groupings. And the people from the lower grouping, they drew a circle of the village and then they drew a line through it from the northeast to the southwest. So this line right through the circle. And they put the upper frailty on one side and the lower frailty on the other. So that's how they drew the mapping. The, the, the dwellings of one frailty were here, the other were here. But then Radden noticed that some of the informers from the upper frailty, when he asked the same question to just draw the circle or draw the, the village, they didn't draw one circle with a line through it, like a stop sign. They drew one circle and then a second circle in the periphery. And in the center were all the dwellings. Everybody was in there together. Then there was some cleared land and then there was virgin forest outside. Right? Now, Radden didn't go any further in, in talking about this, but this is the beginning of Levi-Strauss's famous and important essay. Because Levi-Strauss goes, right, what are the two obvious readings of this? Okay, well, one is relativism, right? A relativistic reading, which says that uh, everybody has a different reading, right? The two different groups have different readings of the village. There is no objective, true mapping of the village, right? There just is what different people think it is. And then on the other side, you've got an objectivist approach, which would say something like, well, actually, if you have a more detailed map, you'll be able to integrate these two uh, different ways of mapping. 
So a more detailed, exhaustive map, a photograph, whatever, can kind of bring together these two different interpretations. But Levi-Strauss says no to both of these. Um, he says, there is some sort of unsymbolized antagonism within the village that creates these two incommensurable ways of mapping the society. Now this is interesting because dual organizations, from an anthropological perspective, a dual organization is a group that split themselves into two, right? That have reciprocal relationships with each other. So some dual organizations are asymmetrical. They're called concentric, right? Where you draw a circle in the middle and the, the important people are in the middle and then on the periphery are the less important people. Or they can be diametric, which is a line down the middle. And sometimes those are symmetrical, right? They're, the people on either side are equal. Uh, the people, say, on the right do the funerals for the people on the left and vice versa. So dual organizations are found everywhere, right? Um, basically, everywhere in the world, you encounter, especially in primitive societies and tribal groups, dualisms, right? Between order and chaos, night and day, anima, animus, you know, masculine, feminine, sacred, profane, raw and cooked. There's literally thousands of them. Um, it's, it's found in rituals, it's found in mythology. There's generally these kinds of dualisms that make up societies. Now, interestingly, it, it would appear, and this is what Levi-Strauss is arguing against, that there are some dual organizations that are, are symmetrical, that are reciprocal, that unify in a non-antagonistic whole, right? There are two groups, and although they have different views and different positions, they come together and then that's the proper functioning of society, right? Even as Republican or Democrat or whatever it is, these two halves enter into a whole, yin and yang. Right. Now, the funny thing is this is, this is a, a basis for New Age thinking. So when you find spiritual thinking and New Age thinking, the zero level of it is the idea of a duality that creates a holism. Now, although New Age thinkers don't like to use the word dual um, and kind of like have an allergic reaction to it, they're using it in a non-academic way. So academically, a dual organization can be described as uh, yin and yang basically, right? Two differences coming together to create a non-antagonistic, simple, symmetrical whole. And each side defines the other, right? There's no up without down, there's no left without right, there's no fast without slow. So these dualisms uh, define each other, contextualize each other, and ultimately connect in some sort of whole. Okay, but this is what Levi-Strauss, through his empirical work and his theoretical work, is saying no to, right? Because he says that what you find in all dual organizations, um, whether it's, I mean, he doesn't talk about whether it's the organization of a biological system or a subjective person or a society, but he says, but it, it refers to that. That's what Lacan does with it. Um, but Levi-Strauss says that whenever you find um, an organization, you won't find simply two non-antagonistic positions that kind of like uh, bring to come together in some sort of like a uh, whole. You'll always find some 
unsymbolized kernel, some tension that hasn't been brought to the surface, what can be called a trauma, right? Something that is not spoken, that generates the, the incommensurable worlds, which means even the way that you divide society already is inscribed into your position within that society. So the two different ways in which you split the society into two halves don't even fit together. Um, now, interestingly, uh, oh, I mentioned that, yeah, one of them was that there was a, a line through the circle of the village and the other, there were two circles. Uh, I, an example of this, I think, is um, whenever the upper frailty of, of, uh, of America and the lower frailty of America were confronted with COVID. You had two very different approaches, which I think kind of maps onto this. So you had people who were uh, actors and uh, musicians and the wealthy who said, we're all in this together against an ecological disaster that is coming in from the outside. So they were like the upper Freddy of the Winnebago tribe, drawing a circle, we're all in it together, and against the environment that this kind of hostile thing that's trying to penetrate. And that kind of rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way, right? Because a lot of people are going like, we're not in this together, right? You've got your massive house and your pool and your jacuzzi and you've got like, you're completely secure, you can pay your rent, you're, you're, you've got a work that you love and you can take time off and it doesn't matter, right? We're not all in this together, right? So there was another group within society who were drawing a circle and a line down it and going, no, the, the antagonism is not a non-social antagonism between us and the external environment, but actually an internal antagonism between people who have all of the money, all of the power, and those who are struggling to pay their rent, those who are struggling with anxiety over how they're going to feed their kids. Right. So that's just kind of an example of, because I, I noticed it on, on Instagram, is all these actors were, I think, genuinely shocked whenever they came out with their songs um, about like, you know, all being one. And these videos, these black and white, very heartfelt videos. <laughs> and um, when I watched them, I was like, oh, you genuinely are going to be surprised. Like you're genuinely going to be caught out by how badly this, this comes across because you're mapping the very uh, kind of cartography of American society differently from those from other people, from the vast majority of people. So that's an example. Um, so for Levi-Strauss, dual organizations always have a secret third. They've always got something that's rubbing up the wrong way, that's not, that's not fitting. And that is the real, right? That's the Lacanian real. That's what Lacan would call the real. The real is not something, it's the contradiction that prevents something from being one with itself. Now, the interesting thing for both Levi-Strauss and Lacan is that the real is actually what holds a community together and what threatens to tear it apart. So the real is this social antagonism which generates religions and myths and kinship, uh, you know, uh, like who to marry and who not to marry. All, all of these types of things that are generated are kind of generated as a way to somehow manage the antagonism of the real that's, that's, that's unsymbolized in the community. So for Levi-Strauss, this is actually what animates a community, what makes it dynamic, what makes it alive. But it is also what threatens to destroy it. 
um, destroy the community in its current form. So the real is this danger and this, this possibility. So that's, that's the real for Levi-Strauss. For Lacan, the real is in our subjectivity. There is a distortion within us, our sexual lives, right? Our libidinal interests, something that is distorted and weird, right? You're all a bit weird. That kind of both holds you together, makes you who you are, and also can threaten to destroy you, right? It can threaten to kind of be, be, be your undoing. Uh, Lacan calls this the santum. This notion of the real, an unsymbolized dimension. And this is connected with trauma as well. If you have had a traumatic event in the past, and all of us do, trauma is, a, is in some respects part of what it means to be human, because a trauma is simply, in a way, an unsymbolized event, an event that is too much, that hasn't been put, rendered into the symbolic dimension, into words. Um, so that ends up defining us, how we do relationships, what jobs we take, what arguments we get into, this unsymbolized something that's nothing. That's, that's bubbling up within us. Um, Hegel calls this the dialectic. Again, it's the same thing for Hegel. Is there is no dual relationship in being itself. Being itself is always haunted by a third. The third isn't something that's there. It's something that isn't there. So it's funny it's called the real because it's the least real thing. But it's also good that it's called the real because it's the most real thing. It's the thing that's always there. Without the real, there is no social organization. There is actually no reality itself. I was watching a um, physics YouTube video last night. And um, I don't know much about physics, but I kind of like watching those YouTube videos. And the guy, the physicist, was saying that uh, the universe is not symmetrical. Without asymmetry, there would be no fundamental forces. So even in physics, the idea is that there has to be a type of antagonism or there would be nothing at all. The fundamental forces wouldn't exist. And Levi-Strauss is saying that in relation to society. And at the very end of the essay, he actually says that, um, that basically social anthropology needs an Einstein. Because Einstein is the one who at least opens the door to quantum mechanics and duality. You know, that duality being, the, in, in physics language, the uh, wave particle uh, kind of uh, uh, superpositioning. So, uh, and of course, Lev Levi-Strauss is the Einstein of, of anthropology because he, he provides a way to think the real in community. Now, I'm going to give you one concrete example of this, and then we'll move on to part two. Uh, this might take a while. Sorry, but you can come back and watch another time if you want to you know, do this in two halves. Um, Marx, his critique of capitalism is a type of attempt to um, hit on the real. So what's Marx's main point, right? Uh, his main point, forget about everything else, right? His main analysis is the idea that capitalism, that, that all economic systems, not just capitalism, all economic systems, ultimately have an unsymbolized uh, contradiction at their heart. And when that contradiction finally erupts and comes to the surface, it fundamentally destroys the system and a new system comes out of the ashes, right? So feudalism has an unsymbolized antagonism and when eventually that came to the surface, feudalism came to an end. Before that, slavery has an antagonism, comes to an end, right? 
So for Freud, or sorry, for Marx, the, the fundamental antagonism within capitalism is surplus value. What he says is in previous systems, uh, every product basically gets what it's worth as long as there's no uh, theft and deception. So in an ideal world, in feudalism, you would go into the marketplace, you would sell your cows, you would then exchange the money for something else, right? Or you would barter. And you basically got the value that these products were worth. And then you gave a certain percentage to the feudal lords. They took a certain amount of money. And the ideologues were the religious priests and all of that who said this is the way the system should be. But in capitalism, Marx says, a commodity comes on the scene that never gets what it's worth, just never gets its value in the ideal system, not when, when capitalism is running badly. In fact, if capitalism is running badly, this commodity might actually get what it's worth. But when capitalism runs well, this is a commodity that is sold on the market that never gets its value. And that's labor power. And what he means by that is you get paid a certain amount and you generate more than that. So I pay you $50 a day, you generate $100 of value. So you're, 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 you by definition are always being paid less than the value that you create. And Marx's point, the mature Marx's point, is simply that this little antagonism that is was not seen before Marx and is basically not seen very much at all, but that little kind of difference, that little antagonism will eventually cause booms and busts and will cause money to go to fewer and fewer people, will cause workers to be more alienated from what they're doing, less invested in what they're doing, and um, will cause all of these crises. And so the point is to try to symbolize that. And it's not something that's real, it's an antagonism. It's literally an antagonism that is going on within the system. So that's an example of the real in kind of in, in the work of Marx. Okay, so just to clarify then, the real using Levi-Strauss is not something, it's an antagonism that prevents a social system from being one with itself. It's what generates a threat to the system, but also kind of holds the system together. And so the reason why I used Marx, actually that's good, <laughs> the reason why I used Marx is because surplus value is what holds capitalism together and what threatens to tear it apart. That's the point, right? So what capitalism is, is this commodity that never gets its value, right? That's central to capitalism. If you don't have that, you don't have capitalism. So that is what capitalism is. That holds it together. But also the point is that it generates these crises that eventually could also tear it apart. It is both the obstacle and the path. It's both what the glue and also the explosion. So secondly then, what is ideology? Ideology can be described as anything that tries to cover over and obscure the real, right? Anything that's designed to avoid the centrality um, and the necessity of the contradiction and the real itself. 
Now, if you want to have a good like overview of how ideology can be understood over time, uh, Todd McGowan's great on it, and he has a video on his YouTube channel. I recommend you check out. It's probably just called Ideology. So check that out. So, but I'm just going to kind of run to the conclusion. But ideology is always attempting to keep the system going, either by returning to the way things were or improving the system a little bit by getting rid of the bad eggs um, or by kind of like just kind of managing or saying it's all already okay, right? It's always ideology is always trying to obscure this antagonism that is able to completely reconfigure the system itself. So when you listen to any news source that's telling you, because okay, one of the main ways of doing ideology is to silence one of the social antagonisms, to say they are bad, they are evil, don't try and understand what that's coming from. If only we got rid of them, everything would be good, right? That's the idea that there is a balance and there is a dual like society is a dual organization, right? So there's differences, there's conservatives and there's liberals and all of that, and that's all fine. But then there's this really annoying little group. And if only we got rid of them, then everything would be fantastic, right? If we just get rid of them. So what basically ideology does is it says the necessity of the real is only a contingent opposition. It's not, it's not there, it's not real. It's, um, if, and if we get rid of something or if we silence something then we can get back to business as usual or we can make the system a bit better we can kind of get rid of bad ceos we can clean up certain things we can do fair trade we can do whatever it is make the system just get it back to normal again like a lot of people are going to just get it back to normal when they don't realize that the normal system is what gave rise to the social antagonisms we see today so if ever you hear someone saying let's get back to say kind of the pre-trump era well, then you've got to go like, but it's not the pre-Trump era what gave birth to it, right? So you, and there's all of the social antagonisms that come under the title of the Trump era. So I'm just talking about what's gone on in the last four years. I, propaganda always wants to save the system. That's, that's its job, always wants to save the system. And so it has to, it has to find a scapegoat. It has to find some group that we vehemently want to get rid of or silence or manage or manipulate in order to in order to get everything kind of working again um, let's see okay yes so let's go on to the third part um, hitting on the real or letting the real speak um, I talk about this, by the way, in The Fundamentalists, which comes out tomorrow. So if you want kind of a, a more informal discussion on this stuff, check that out tomorrow. Um, hitting on the real means trying to articulate what it is that's the problem and what's going on in the society that's rippling across the entire social field that's creating all of these incommensurable worlds, these worlds that can't even decide on mutual definitions because the definitions already are uh, engulfed and folded into the very location that you speak from. So you can't even talk about the differences because you differ on what the differences are, right? Um, trying to hit on the real is attempting to go, what is it that's creating the entire distortion? Because the real always has what Hegel calls a determinate 
um, structure. In other words, the reel always has a certain feel, right? The reel will be different in different cultures, but there's, so it has a different kind of uh, texture depending on the society. Uh, but the one thing that you know is when you hit on the reel, when it speaks, uh, the system begins to break. The system crumbles as it currently is. Because the one thing that can't keep going is once you hit on the reel is the system. It's a threat. And I'll just use a concrete example of, say, a couple who have been married for 20 years. And everything on the surface seems fine. But there's all this stuff going on under the surface, you know, the odd affair, the kind of like uh, uh, these kind of underlying bitterness, somebody staying, somebody staying at work always longer than they really need to, uh, just to kind of avoid going home. All of this kind of stuff is going on, but it's not symbolized. It's not talked about, right? So it's there and it's simmering. And it's coming out in the return of the repressed, right? The kids might, the kid might have anorexia or might be struggling at school or there might be some health issues with one of the people, you know, maybe digestion issues or, or whatever. The, the, the real returns, what can't be symbolized, will make itself felt in various ways within the structure of the family. But the weird thing is, it's kind of partly what holds it together. Right? Although you think it's what tears them, this couple apart, this simmering reel is also what creates the, the ebbs and flows and the passions and intensities. And they're, they've been like this. Let's imagine this couple have been like this for 10 years. But then let's imagine as well that the antagonisms, the return of the repressed, right, is getting too bad. Right? The, it's damaging so much of the family and other people that it, it becomes impossible to ignore. And so the couple goes to a therapist and they begin to speak. And over time, they begin to hit on this antagonism that is at the heart of their relationship. And it begins to come to the surface. Now, once this starts to come to the surface, the only thing that can't stay the same is the relationship. Once all the affairs and the, the anger and the bitterness and all of that starts to be spoken and once the kind of trauma begins to be symbolized in some way, right, then two things are going to happen. One, the couple are going to break up, which by the way is great probably because it's much better than them staying together and having another 20 years of that simmering thing that is causing all of these problems within their family unit, right? So they'll break up. Or they'll break up with the type of relationship that they have with each other. They will reconfigure their relationship. They will think about how do they do it differently. Because that's something that, you know, in all relationships, there's kind of like, you can either break up with a person, but sometimes you don't break up with the type of relationship you have with that person. So you have that same type of relationship the next time. So you haven't touched on the real. The system of how you, you relate to people stays exactly the same, and then you repeat through various relationships. Or you break up with the very way in which you do relationships. Uh, and then you, you can stay with the person. You, may, you might not, but it also allows you the possibility of staying with the same person because you're now, you've got a different system that you relate to each other with. When you hit on the real in that family, the only thing that doesn't stay the same is the system, is the, is the current uh, relationship. Um, another example from years ago, I had a friend who came from the Texas and had very religious family members. 
And when they came to visit her, she would hide the alcohol in the house. And one day she forgot to do that. They came round and there was some vodka or whatever sitting on the table. And this caused a big argument. And the funny thing was, like I said to her, like, oh, so they didn't know you drank? And she said, oh, no, they did know I drank. They were the ones who tell me to hide the alcohol, right? So everybody knows this. she drinks, right? Everybody knows it. The family know it. She knows it. But she hides the alcohol and everyone pretends that she's not. Right? So everyone can pretend that everything's fine. So it's kind of unsymbolized. It's not put into language. And therefore everything can, can function. And it, it does that because the people do want to fall into crisis. The family do want to have all of these arguments. But the truth is the family already is in crisis. They just don't know it. The crisis is there being repressed and then coming out in all sorts of other ways. Once the vodka bottle is put on the table, one of two things will happen. Maybe the family unit will break up for a while, maybe forever. But still, that might be preferable to this simmering underlying resentments and anger and bitterness. Or the family start to talk and they find a new way of relating together. But the bottle of vodka hits on the real and prevents things from carrying on as normal. Okay. So, oh, I was thinking of... Um, I was thinking, I don't know if this works as an analogy, but um, Wiley e. Coyote, when he chases Roadrunner, I remember once he, Roadrunner was on a cliff and hanging off the side of a cliff, it was overhanging, and Wiley e. Coyote is chipping away at the cliff to get the little bit of the cliff to fall and kill the bird. And he hits one particular place and the whole rest of the cliff collapses. Uh, and that little tiny bit stays, right? That's what hitting on the reel is like. You're just tapping away, tapping away, tapping. But when you hit on the reel, it's like a, an atomic explosion. And so in analysis, you're kind of working with the reel. Um, and for Levi-Strauss, he's trying to isolate and understand the reel. Now, the point is, for someone like Hegel, Every time the real bubbles and the social antagonisms become so high, this is the point of real change and real possibility. This is the point when something dramatic can happen and we can move into another way of being, another way of relating to each other. Um, uh, it's always dangerous, but it's, that's, what, that's what becomes possible. And the funny thing is, Hegel never basically said, you don't know where it's gonna be. The role of the political theorist is not to imagine the utopia, because what you imagine will always just be an idealized reflection of your own present desires, right? If you say to me, fulfill your dreams, and I say, I want to be rich, right? That's just an idealized form of my desires. What I really want is not to fulfill my dreams, but to enter into a space where I can dream new dreams, right? So for Hegel, it's like, don't, he would be very against this progressive idea of like, you know where things are going. Because the thing is, just like Stalin, when you know th where things are going, you can sacrifice anything to get there because you know where history is going. And if you know where history is going, then you are, you are fine about sacrificing because you're on the right side of history. Apocalyptic thinking says, we don't know what the next stage is. The role of the political theorist is simply to bring up the real within the current system bring it to the surface, let it speak, show how it distorts all of social reality. And when it's brought to the surface, the next system will begin to arise. And so our job is to be apocalypticists, is to divine 
what the real is in the current climate. So that's why the political theory is basically about um, and has to avoid the um, the danger, the Stalinist danger, what's, what Todd McGowan calls the right-wing deviation of the left, where you imagine what the harmonious, non-antagonistic uh, future will look like. Going, no, you just bring up the inherent problems today, you allow them to speak within the institutions, you give them space to breathe, you allow people to map social reality, you watch how they map social reality and you start to work out what it is that's happening across the board. So takeaways from this um, is, I would say the basic takeaways are, we have to take very seriously what the social antagonisms are, listen to them and realize that getting rid of certain groups, whatever group that is that we think we should get rid of. Um, like for example, I just put up my course Atheism for Lent and it somehow got caught up in a very conservative world and I got these most amazing <laughs> comments and attacks about doing it. But I'm like, this is fascinating to me. There's a whole group of people for whom Atheism for Lent um, caused this intense feeling and experience. I want to know why, right? So it was like, we want to know why this, this intensity is there. We, we want to avoid propaganda and ideology, especially on our side, whatever our side is. Anyone who's telling you that they can get rid of the social antagonism um, and create a kind of unified working system, as long as we get rid of these few bad apples, that is a form of propaganda where we're not seeing the real. And then thirdly, what do I think that is? I'll say, I'll say very quickly a couple of thoughts. Is There's a weird fantasy we have. It's not a weird fantasy, I mean, but it's a weird fantasy that we want to avoid sacrifice. We want to get, we often fantasize about having enough money that we can just relax, live by the beach, not do any more work, right? Where we want to escape this system because this system demands so much sacrifice from so many people, right? This is a type of fantasy that I think is generated from a flaw within how we sacrifice. That actually sacrifice is central to meaning, right? Sacrifice is central to love, it's central to friendships. Um, it's central to the, it's the very thing that calls communities together, reciprocal, sacrifices right um, and with the more you sacrifice for your work if you're involved in your work and you're you're not alienated from it you the more satisfaction you feel the problem is we sacrifice so much and our communities don't benefit from that sacrifice we are alienated we feel in different ways in different communities less and less connected to the power structures we feel that our sacrifices are going to a very small number of people big tech, corporate America, entertainment industry. And we feel potentially more and more that the government is not as powerful as things like big tech and, um, and in the pockets of these organizations. And we feel in some way more and more alienated, insecure about our uh, financial position. Uh, there's a lack of social mobility. Um, and there's kind of almost a, a sense in which we're almost going back to a type of feudalism in which we will be you know, given a UBI potentially and we'll work away and we'll be renting everything from the TV shows we watch to the places we live. We won't be, we're not engaged in the creative process. The sacrifices that we give, um, we don't see 
the people we love and the people around us benefiting from. So my worry is that we're living in a society of increasing alienation. We're seeing this more and more and uh, financial instability. And we have to find a way of naming that and uh, putting language to it in a way that resonates across uh, the US and beyond. But, and the thing that happens when you hit on the real, and this is the weird thing, but you see it in religion, like we see with the Apostle Paul, Jew and Gentile were two opposites. Never thought Jew and Gentile would be unified, right? When you hit on the real, these oppositions that you think are impossible to transcend suddenly unify in some way. Not everybody within it, but it's something unifies. Same with my work within the religious world where atheism and theism were often and still are in confession Christianity often seen as opposites. But my work attempted to hit on something an unsymbolized doubt, ambiguity and complexity in religious life that when articulated brings together these two seemingly incommensurable worlds. So we know we hit on the real whenever what we describe resonates um, uh, across the board. Okay, that is what I wanted to say. Now I'm going to, in fear and trembling, look at uh, comments and see if there's any questions. Okay, let's see. I'll just fly right down to the bottom here. Um, okay, there's lots, lots of comments. Oh, uh, so as an easy one, Jay says, what's, or Jas says, what essay is that of Levi-Strauss? It's called Dual, Do Dual Organizations Exist? Um, and it's a very readable essay for the first half, and then the second half gets really quite technical and difficult, but very, very interesting. Um, and potentially the second half is actually the least interesting half. Um, but yeah, Do Dual Organizations Exist? Uh, I think Lacan used the essay to talk about subjectivity that like we are like the Winnebago tribe we have um, uh, within us a kind of incommensurable type of uh, experience in our subjectivity so it's a, it's an interesting essay in psychoanalysis as well um, Hannah says, the real almost sounds like Caputo's call. So he asked John Caputo. Yeah, Hannah, you're right. You're right. That's true. That, you know, in continental philosophy, uh, there, you could almost define continental philosophy as, a tr as attempting to do justice to and take seriously the real. And there's different names for it. The event, the call, right? There's the, and, the, and, the, and these often kind of bring out some other dimensions. So, but when you're reading continental philosophy, there is, this is almost the, def, the difference between analytic philosophy and continental philosophy. Although, <laughs> to use the example of Levi-Strauss's Winnebago tribe, the very way you define a difference between analytic and, and continental philosophy probably is already enfolded into whichever position you're in, right? But from the continental philosophy position, I would say that analytic philosophy just like New Age spirituality, doesn't have a category for the real. Now, some analytic philosophers do, 100%, but analytic philosophy basically birthed out of a critique of Hegel. And uh, people like Bertrand Russell um, were very critical of Hegel's dialectic process. So 
definitely in continental philosophy, you will tend to find philosophers are interested in how do we do justice to this unspeakable social antagonism that, that exists or uh, subjective antagonism, uh, the nothing basically. So it's called the santom, the call, the event, the real, all of these touch on similar, similar things. Um, Okay, Thomas says, specifically, Marx said in previous systems, value is equivalent to the labor put into making the product. In capitalism, uh, labor alone does not term value. Ah, Thomas, yeah, this is a really good question, right? This, I love this, right? It takes us a little bit off what I was talking about, but labor theory of value. Um, uh, a lot of people are critical of it. I think you can save it. I totally think you can. I think Marx is right. Um, and because, first of all, we have to make a very a distinction between value and price, right? Labor does not dictate price, it dictates value. So Marx is like Newton, right? Mar Newton isn't talking about how things travel within space and time. Newton is talking about how things travel in kind of an ideal space, right? In a vacuum, something doesn't stop unless something acts upon it, right? Something doesn't start until something acts upon it. But of course, in reality, there's always things acting upon forces and uh, objects. In the same way, Marx is talking about if supply and demand are all equal, if all of these other things are equal within all of the kind of contingent factors that are going on are all equal, then what determines the, then value and price would be the same. <laughs> but value, is 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 not price and i think that's how you save that um but you know other people disagree with me you probably disagree with me um i'll maybe do a talk on that some stage and try and defend the labor theory of value uh, okay yes yeah, sarah asked a very good question right so he says that's a good example in marx why didn't the, his symbolizing of the antagonism of surplus value bring capitalism to an end you stated that when the symbolized is hit it brings it to an end yeah that's it's very good that was one of the issues for uh, marxists was like it's like the same thing for the early christians is why did jesus not come back for the early marxists why did the revolution not come because the idea was once it is kind of symbolized and brought to the surface, um, uh, then it should happen. And that is then what lots of thinkers after, like the Frankfurt School, were trying to, to work out. In fact, this might be too simplistic to say, but the Frankfurt School, in a way, are trying to answer that question. And that's why they turn to ideology. Ideology critique is in Marx. But what the Frankfurt School do is they look at how strong ideology is. Like ideology is the force that is constantly trying to hide the real, constantly trying to hide the dynamic asymmetry or contradiction of reality. And they basically were trying to, to isolate, you know, the, the strength of that. And that's similar to, to Freud. When Freud talks about resistance in analysis, he basically, Freud's saying that, resistance is always happening when you're the reason why it's so hard and takes so long in analysis to get somewhere it happens very gradually behind your back really is because at every step of the way there are these defenses these resistances that are always forcing it 
down. Or, you know, you could say that, that or Marx was wrong or whatever, you know. I'm, I'm like, the, the people I'm interested in, so Todd McGowan, you know, is a, is a Hegelian who's very sympathetic to Marx. That's how I would probably define myself. I'm more of a Hegelian now, the older I get. Um, but yeah, that's a good question. That's like, that's a biggie. Um, and that's kind of like, a, you know, that's almost like you could say the history of Christianity after the early Christians was like, let's explain why Jesus didn't come back, right? Um, yeah. Um, let's see. Oh yeah, someone said the McGowan video was called Theories of Ideology. Thank you, thank you, Joseph. And uh, Wefa says, this sounds a little bit like Mark Fisher. Yeah, yeah, Mark Fisher is really interesting. I think he was a, a very interesting thinker. Um, and then Reed says, yeah, I think uh, identifying and symbolizing the antagonism isn't enough. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of touches on Sarah's issue. It's like, so why is it? And it happens in psychoanalysis. It's like when you hit on the real, I've seen this, I've got friends who do psychoanalysis, I'm always very interested because that's the theory that I work with. And even when the real speaks within the, the clinic and language is put to it, often there are these reversals. These are, there are these move backs um, and you know, progress is made and then, and, then, and then dissipates in an instant. And um, so there are these resistances and these defenses that, that keep on going along the way and we need to take seriously those absolutely. And uh, you know, if, if we had maybe longer, we would talk more about that. Um, uh, yeah, Altizer, uh, or Altazar, I always get those confused. Um, Altazar, uh, uh, there's Thomas Altizer, who's a radical theologian, and there's um, Altazar, who's uh, one of the uh, Frankfurt School, and yes, he's very, very good in ideology. Um, let's see. Gia says, uh, it was not true that philosophers had only interpreted the world, though. Oh, you might be, I think I feel I jumped in on a, you said something else earlier, but. Um, Jazz is uh, quoting Marx, who says in uh, uh, his uh, thesis on Feuerbach, he says, uh, philosophers only interpret the world, the point is to change it. Uh, and then Jazz says, it was not true that philosophers had only interpreted the world, though. Yes, that's true. Um, and then someone like Shizek likes to turn that point around now and say, actually, you know, we do need to interpret the world. This is the return to Hegel. This is my, and this is why I've returned to Hegel is because um, actually I think we need, we need theory. We need interpretation, right? And that's Shizak's big point. And that's my, that's my reason for doing this talk is I've looked at the hot takes. There's lots of people I like online. There's lots of these kind of popular thinkers who I, I will watch and, but there's very little theorizing it's a lot of uh, what we should do. And actually, I do think there is a place for, for not saying, you know, what we should do, changing the world, but theorizing the world. And Hegel, Hegel's point is theorizing the world as in symbolizing the world, putting language to things is transformation. So that's kind of the difference between Hegel and Marx. And then you kind of want to bash them together a little bit. Uh, Oh yes, Adam said, and Adam brings that up. Does the act of interpreting the world itself change it? For Hegel, basically yes. He, Hegel's an idealist, so um, there's obviously a lot of argument about this, but he, Hegel basically is going like, um, there, the way that we put words to or, or, or encounter the antagonism and the conflict, that is what 
changes things. That's the movement that changes things. And um, my example is Northern Ireland, the Good Friday Agreement. There was 30 year war in 1998. The political parties all got together. They hashed it out. Nobody, they basically all had to put down their utopias, their vision of where society was going and just fight it out and argue and bring words to everything. And what happened was the Good Friday Agreement, which was the ultimate beautiful articulation of contradiction, right? So Northern Ireland, I think is a beautiful example of so many contradictions. It's part of Britain and part of Ireland. You can be British and you're Irish. Now, pretty much you're part of the European Union and you're part of the UK. Uh, Northern Ireland is um, what, uh, what Levi-Strauss, he uses the term, what's it called, a double twist. It's where the antagonism is not resolved in some sort of unity, but is retwisted um, and becomes productive. So yeah, so, um, but yeah, I think that's a good example of, of, of what this can look like in politics. Uh, Sarah says, Peter should start a side hustle to help people break up. Did I ever tell you, um, I was sitting in a bar once in New York and I was chatting with some people and some people were asking like, you know, going like, well, listen, Icon, does it, like, what, does it work? You're right, you're doing this group and have you seen like positive results? And I used an example, there was a couple there and I said, well, this couple were married for, for, for 10 years and they split up because of Icon. And, um, and I kind of realized that I was talking about this phrase and then the other people in the room were just looking at me like this is the most bizarre thing to uh, bring up as a success story is that this couple were no longer together. But I was like, no, talk to them. They're really happy they're not together. Like they, they spent 10 years where they were like simmering and it was only when they brought it to the surface, they were actually able to break up and uh, you know do life together, but differently. So yeah, my, uh, that was my first thought whenever someone said, um, uh, Show me icon working. Uh, I'll maybe do one or two more. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, Reed says, uh, if you've interpreted that your boss is extracting surplus value from you, does that change the labor relation? Yeah, that, no, yes, you know, you're right. Um, it's, this is why, this is why I'm really into Todd McGowan's work. And his book, Capitalism and Desire, I think is so interesting is because what I actually do, I think there's something does happen. Actually, genuinely something real happens. When, and this sounds almost like the matrix, you know, it's like when you see, when you see the antagonism, you are no longer libidinally invested in it. Now that doesn't mean you're not materially invested in it as in you have to work to make a living, you have to work within the system, you have to do certain things. But the first act is a radical act of libidinal sacrifice. It's a disinvestment from the system that on the surface looks like nothing's happened, but um, something radical has happened. And so my work with, with pyrotheology is partly to set up communities that become libidinally disinvested from the idea of a lost object, right? Basically the idea of something that will make us whole and complete. Um, icon and pyrotheology is designed as a theory and technology to help you encounter the real in your own lives and in, in, in the wider world. Um, to, so as to disinvest us from our libidinal investment in the system. And for me, if you can have millions of people experiencing that, then that does also have material kind of real world effect. 
But um, yeah, but so that's why we need, that's why I do the work that I do. Because um, I don't think you can do it on your own. I don't think you can do it just intellectually. I think you need ritual. Like rituals are important. Um, it's about engaging in certain practices that, uh, that help you detach. So for example, the practice of psychoanalysis, it is a technology. You sit on a couch and you do free association. That is a liturgy as a practice and it's a practice designed not to help you avoid the real but to encounter it so so many of the liturgical practices within society are designed to prevent you from encountering the real right go get drunk hang out with your friends you know dislike this group of people find your whatever right so many so many rituals we do that are designed to help us avoid that but i think we need rituals in our lives that help us encounter it and uh, yeah, that brings us into, oh, I'm going to do three talks on the practice of parotheology at the end of this month and then in February and then in March. Um, so if you're interested in those, I'm going to be doing them on my Patreon, but I'll probably release them for free six months down the line, but where I'm going to talk about that very thing. Um, let's see. Oh, there's lots. I could sit here all day, but I shouldn't. Um, let's fly down a little bit more. Um, okay, excuse the dead air as I read stuff. Oh, I've got to the bottom. So Mary Beth, uh, let's go with you as the last one, last one So in US politics, are we watching opposing ideologies, each with their own unexpressed third element, or one ideology not willing to articulate the unsymbolized third element? Okay, that's good, right. So in US politics, are we watching the opposing ideologies, each with their own unexpressed third element, or one ideology not willing to articulate? You know, I I'd put it slightly differently, but yeah, you're basically in the ballpark and see if I can say it. I would say that we are seeing different groups mapping the social antagonism in different ways, and all of those different ways reflect on, on something that has been so far broadly unsymbolized. So there is, there is something that, and it's so, there's, so it's not commensurable. We can't kind of like just see this as oppositions or differences. The very distinctions, the very social divisions that are being drawn in America, the, the way you draw the antagonism expresses how you're enfolded within that society. But there is, I would say, always a central real. This is uh, where the, uh, Lacan calls it the Santon, but it's like, there's lots of contingent issues, right? We can make the system work a bit better, right? We can do fair trade, or we can pay people better, or we can consume less, or we can get rid of bad CEOs, or we can make more diversity in the workplace, or more representation, right? We can do those things within the system. But the real is not what you do within the system. The real hits on the central it's the central oppression that if you deal with it, the system can no longer exist. And that's what is avoided. That's what I think is often avoided. Um, and I think it might take years to, I mean, it's, it's not, this is not easy. It's not like in, in one, one person's going to arrive and, although maybe one person will arrive. Um, the, uh, that's the whole point of, um, uh, I'm uh, Helen, who's on, on the chat here, uh, is going to direct a, a short or a, a documentary on Tammy Faye Baker. Tammy Faye Baker is a good example of, of something in the real. Because Tammy Faye Baker, she unified people who 
would never be unified otherwise, right? You've got fundamentalist Christians sitting around with, uh, with, with transgender people, with gay and lesbian activists, and, and all of these people, like, Do like Dolly Parton, right? But Tammy Faye is a, is a, is a figure of St. Paul in a way, right? She, she brings together this weirdly hits on something that, that brings together groups that we would otherwise think are completely incommensurable. So this documentary is basically going to be about how we need a new Tammy Faye, right? So I don't know who the new Tammy Faye is. Um, it, it might be a person or a movement uh, or it might come up gradually. But when it happens, it's bizarre because what it does is the all the lines that everybody draws suddenly don't make sense. You know the real has been hit whenever you're going like, all of these people together, that grip and that, that's impossible. That can never happen. That should not happen. Just like, say, Tammy Faye, who was the embodiment of an American contradiction. She was very small town girl, but very consumerist. She was very loved everybody, and, uh, so embracive of everybody, but with also fundamentalist values. And all of these contradictions that were in her, you know, her makeup, that hid her and yet her profound authenticity. You're seeing a dual organization in Tammy Faye, but it's not a dual organization because that's the point Levi Strauss makes. There's no such thing as a dual organization. Tammy Faye was a dual organization with, an, with something, obviously antagonisms and, and, and the real bubbling up within her, but she was able to uh, bring together difference. So I don't know who that's going to be or what's going to happen, but I think we need a new Tammy Faye for today. Um, uh, Owen Kevin says, apparently I don't, didn't know what, don't know what Tammy Faye did. You know, the funny thing is it wasn't really so much what she did, it was who she was. It's like the Titanic. The Titanic was a, just a ship sinking, but it wasn't because it captured all of the contradictions of the age, right? The end of Europe, like the height of European technology, right? This, these were the spaceships of the age. Um, it was the class system working together, the upper class at the top, the middle class in the middle, the lower class at the bottom, and then hitting an iceberg, and basically the coming of the war, the end of this kind of whole vision of society. So the Titanic, just in its very being, was a bringing together of these contradictions and an explosion of, of the real. It hit the real. Um, so yeah. All right. Uh, thank you so much for being part of this. I hope that was useful in some way. I um, was want to do this, to be honest, and I spent a week reading and thinking about it, and I was almost not going to do it, and then I just forced myself to put the advert on. So I hope you got something out of it. I really appreciate you checking in. Have a great day. Bye-bye.